So just a moment before coming up here, I was sitting down right there with Levi right next to me, and uh, Artan was on the other side of him, and Levi was sitting in between us. And I noticed Levi kind of looking back and forth and looking back and forth, and then he finally says to me, Daddy, you don't have hair, but he has hair. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of confidence boost I need before getting up here. But, uh, good morning. It is good to be back with you all. Uh, I uh, was able to watch the, the stream of the service last week, and it was a wonderfully uh, conducted service, and Artan did an excellent job, and uh, it is nice to be back with you. And if you remember, uh, what we were beginning to discuss before, uh, before last week was we were going through the book of Acts, and kind of for the first few weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke and Acts, because... Well, uh, as we've mentioned, Luke and Acts are the same book. If you just read Acts, it's like starting in the second half of a long novel. All of the characters and a lot of the main plots and storylines and themes have already been introduced in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, it, as you're reading through your New Testament, you know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. John's a wonderful book, but we need to kind of recognize that it's right in the middle of part one and part two of Luke and Acts. Uh, and so throughout this, I'll occasionally refer to Luke-Acts as I talk about these two books. And, and, you know, the last time I preached, we tried to show how a lot of the themes that are started in Luke carry over and come to fruition in the book of Acts. And a lot of the ideas that uh, are hinted at and hinted towards in Luke, they end up uh, coming to reality and being seen more fully in the, in the book of Acts. And so uh, we'll be able to see that quite a bit. Before we, before we dig uh, into the, or to the book of Acts. Uh, but today what we're going to talk about is actually something that uh, is really important. And it's something that's really important and traditionally has been very important for churches of Christ. And I think it's a very good thing that it has. In fact, I think uh, it's one of the things that I really like about the churches of Christ is the emphasis that is placed on this topic. We're going to be talking about baptism. And baptism is something that for 2,000 years in the history of the church has been very, very important. But it's also something, and this is kind of tragic, baptism has been something that has become controversial. Um, I say become controversial. Baptism is controversial. Uh, it, it's been controversial. And the reason it's controversial is because you mentioned baptism, and depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a lot of different ideas in your head about what it is, what it looks like, why you do it, what happens when you're baptized. Uh, and, and so some, some groups kind of camp out on some of those ideas more so than other ones. And because of that, you can mention baptism and like start a 50-minute theological argument, you know, or, a, you know, longer than 50 minutes. Uh, and and you, can, you can turn something like, like a wonderful, precious gift of God into a reason for arguing and fighting. And that's, it's always ironic when you have certain practices like the Lord's Supper or like baptism that at their heart are meant to unify and to, to draw people together. And yet over time, they end up becoming the types of things that separate people and, and draw people farther apart. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about baptism and we're not going to necessarily talk about it in relation to all the debates that people have about it. We're going to try to look at the baptism as it's discussed in Luke and Acts. Uh, we're going to look at some of the, the key passages that Luke and Acts bring up when they talk about baptism because, well, really, as you read through the New Testament, Luke and Acts are going to focus on it more than most other books. I mean, Acts has more accounts of baptism uh, than, than any other books. And so we're going to, to learn from it. 
Now, we could make this a very, 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 very long lesson and look at every example in the book of Acts at uh, people being baptized and see what we can learn from that, but I don't think you want a very, 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 very long lesson right now. So we're going to have to limit it to, to a couple that I think are helpful. Uh, but uh, as we continue to go through Acts over the next couple of weeks, I'm sure we'll see other ones that we'll be able to discuss. In short... If I had to give my very brief uh, one-sentence explanation of what baptism is in the book of Acts, it is saying yes to the message of Jesus. When the gospel of Jesus is presented in a new city or to a group of people, people either walk away from that or they say yes to it. And when people say yes to the message of Jesus, they do so in baptism. Baptism is the affirmative response to the gospel. And that's how it's presented throughout the book of Acts. You can read through the rest of the New Testament and you can see a lot of the imagery and theology that's associated with it. One thing that I think is a beautiful image is it makes it a beautiful yes answer when you recognize that the gospel of Jesus is rooted in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And baptism is a way that followers of him who are dead to sin are buried with him in the waters, and then we are raised up. And just like Jesus had a new, eternal, resurrected life, we have a new life when we come up from the waters of baptism. That's central to understanding what baptism is. Baptism is, in essence, a crucifixion, a burial, and then a, a resurrection to be a new man, to be a new person, to be who God has called you to be. And along with that blessing, there are a ton of things associated with it uh, that you can go through and you can just count all of the things that the Bible says about baptism. You get a pretty good, healthy list of reasons to think this is a good idea to do this. Uh, but as you talk about baptism, there's, there's a, a lot of areas you can go to. But in essence, the shortest answer I would give you is that baptism is the way you say yes to the gospel. Baptism is the way you say yes to Jesus as you enter into a new life with him. Baptism, however, did not start with Jesus, and it didn't start with the church. It actually has some pretty ancient roots, long before Jesus and the church. Uh, what I mean is, we, we don't usually use the word baptism for this. We might use the word uh, immersion. Or, or uh, you know, sometimes there were, there were various kinds of washing rituals. But uh, you can look at uh, the Old Testament and you can see examples. Uh, we, we had a lesson about a month ago or so uh, looking at Naaman, who uh, was uh, a, uh, a captain in the army who eventually had to dip himself in the uh, Jordan River seven times to be cleansed of his leprosy. That's a cleansing that took place through immersion. Uh, it wasn't something that was like commanded of all Jews to do in order to be Israelites or something, but it is an example of a type of immersion that had a cleansing ritual associated with it. In the Law of Moses, you can see outside, when they, when they actually build the temple, you know, not, not the tabernacle, but when they build the permanent temple, they build this huge laver out in front of it. It's like this huge pool of water. And as you look at the dimensions of it, it's about 15 feet across and about seven and a half feet deep, this huge pool of water. And that pool of water was used for a number of things, but immersion rituals were, were part of it that the priests would undergo. They would cleanse themselves. They would put on their robes and enter into the temple. As a matter of fact, there is a passage in the New Testament that picks up on some of that imagery in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, 
You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves in him or have put on Christ. The picture there is you go through the washing and then you put on your clothes. And the clothes that we wear are Christ. We have clothed ourselves in Jesus Christ through baptism. We've become sons of God through faith in baptism. So, so you can see that long before, you know, Jesus or the church, uh, or Jesus incarnate, or the church, baptism was being practiced. It's even, by the way, practiced in some, like, mystery religions in pagan and uh, uh, Greek religions that have nothing to do with Judaism or Christianity. The idea of water being a washing is, is a, an idea that is, you know, prominent in the ancient world. Um, but when John the Baptist comes on the scene, uh, you see something interesting. Even in Judaism, baptism had been practiced uh, for a number of reasons prior to John. Uh, there is a whole section in this book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah records a lot of like the oral traditions of Jews. There's a whole section in it called mikvah. And basically a mikvah is an immersion pool. It's a pool of water that you immerse yourself in. And people would do that uh, if they were a proselyte who was wanting to become uh, a practicer of the religion of Israel. Uh, they would uh, immerse themselves in a mikvah. Or if you were going to the temple, if you look at like Jerusalem, lining the way to the temple, there are immersion pools along the way that you could immerse yourself in as you go and you cleanse yourself in preparation to bring an offering to the temple or something like that. But there were reasons for it and there were practices for it. So the idea of baptism when John came on the scene was not a rare thing. Uh, it was something that people already knew of. What was really unique about John however, was, uh, and it actually earned him a nickname. You know, a lot of people in the Bible have nicknames. John gets the nickname John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, John the, the fellow who baptizes. Uh, what was unique about his is that in these other examples, people would immerse themselves. But with John, he's doing it. Like, he's taking someone in putting them underwater and pulling them up. And so he gets this nickname. He's the guy who does that. He's the guy who actually baptizes people instead of people doing it themselves. And John would do it for a number of reasons. If you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, we'll look at some of those uh, reasons as we begin. Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, we get uh, some of the, uh, the explanation of what John is doing. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, talking about John the Baptist, it says, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's remarkable, and that's actually quite radical, what John is doing right there. One, he's preaching a baptism of repentance. And so uh, one thing he's going to do is he's going to be the one who baptizes, which is rare. Another thing is he's going to tell you, if you're going to let me do this to you, if you're going to accept this baptism, it's going to require a change of life on your part, which we'll discuss specifically some of the things that he says that means in, in the following verses. But then notice he also says it's for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll talk about this idea again a little bit later. But right now, Consider the context in which John is saying that. John has already been introduced to us in Luke chapter 1 by the fact that his father's a priest at the temple. John comes from a priestly family. If you were to ask his father, hey, where do you go to for forgiveness of sins? He probably wouldn't say the Jordan River to be baptized by my son. He'd probably say the temple. That's where you get forgiveness. And that's where you offer your sacrifices. That's where God forgives his people. John is doing something unique 
he's in essence challenging the authority of the temple, which Jesus is going to do throughout the Gospel of Luke also. He challenges the authority of the temple by saying, no, you can have forgiveness right here. By changing your life and accepting this baptism, you can have the forgiveness of sins. It's an incredible idea, and it's a controversial idea. And it's one of those ideas that leads people to ask the question, the baptism of John, was it from God, or did John just make that up? Was it from God, or was it from men? Because if you're, I mean, if you're a priest, and you're asked that question, and you have your Bible, you can show them, no, I mean, read the Law of Moses. There's nothing in there about going to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. That's, that's a completely made-up idea, is what they could say. But at the same time, the people revere John as this great prophet. And if they say that, the people are going to be upset. And so this is part of the controversy that develops around John's baptism. It seems like it's a completely new idea. So if John is not a legitimate prophet, then he just made it up. But if John is a legitimate prophet, then maybe there's something to this. And so it has to do with your view of John, how you answer that question. And so John is doing something really unique here and quite controversial. The leaders of Israel don't want to accept it because a lot of their authority comes from the temple. And if the temple is no longer relevant or if the temple is becoming less relevant, then all of a sudden, so are they. And so uh, there's, there's reason to not like John's baptism. And so uh, if you look at verse 7, it says, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to, wrath from the, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, he's a nice preacher. Uh, in, in verse 8, he tells them to therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not uh, begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Um, you know, that's, you could uh, reject John and say, you know what? I'm in a covenant relationship with God, not because of baptism or repentance, but because I'm a descendant of Abraham, because we have a covenant that goes all the way back to Exodus 24, because of my genealogy, because of the temple. Like, there are all of these things that you could use to say John's message is unnecessary now. And what uh, John is saying is, look, God could turn stones into sons of Abraham. What he wants to see is an actual change of heart. What he wants to see is a change in you. So if you're going to do this, don't just do it. Actually bear fruit of repentance that, that coincides with this action you're taking. This is not a mindless action just to go underwater and come up. This represents a legitimate change of life. So live a new way. And I love this section because this is where you get people starting to ask, well, what new way do I live? Like you get some specifics about what repentance means. One of the problems with the word repentance is it can mean a thousand different things depending on who you are and where you are in life and what you're going through and what sins you have or what changes you need to make or what you need to believe differently or, or how you need to, to see, view the world or Jesus differently. Like, repentance can mean a lot. And so people say, okay, well, what does that mean for me? Uh, if you look at verse 10, it says, the crowds were questioning, well, then what shall we do? By the way, that's going to be a question that's repeated throughout the, gospel, uh, throughout the book of Acts. You'll see people who ask that question. But they ask, then what shall we do? In verse 11, he would answer, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. 
So one thing he says is, be more generous than you are. Well, what's interesting is this is going to parallel some things that Jesus teaches later in the Gospel of Luke also. Uh, and so you'll see John's message is uh, really setting the stage for some of the things that Jesus is going to say. And one of the calls of repentance for the message of the kingdom of God is a radical kind of generosity. As a matter of fact, as you read through these, almost everything he says deals with finances. Uh, it deals with your money and uh, being less attached to it. So if you have two tunics and you see someone without a tunic, you don't need two tunics. You can help that person. If you have more food than you need and you see someone without food, you don't need that food anymore. You can share. One thing that is a fruit of repentance, uh, which, which baptism calls you to, is a radical generosity and a love for your fellow man. You can continue reading verse 12, then the tax collectors, they come out and they want to be baptized in verse 12 and they say, well, what shall we do? And he tells them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So again, it deals with money. And he says, look, don't try to pad your wallet by charging people more or by uh, telling them you actually owe a greater number than you do. This is also planting the seed for some later conversations. Remember Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is someone who, after meeting Jesus, he's a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. And after meeting Jesus, he not only repays fourfold whatever he took from people, he then gives half of his possessions to the poor, and from that point forward, he's not going to rip people off anymore. Like, he's going to produce these types of fruit in his life. And then you can see the final group in verse 14. Some soldiers were questioning, and uh, they want to know, what shall we do? And he says, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. That's, that final one is also, that, that's a tough one sometimes. Uh, and you, if you live in a society where there's always the idea of more and more and more and more, what he's saying is learn to be content with what you have. And by the way, don't use force to take money from others and make sure that, I don't care what your commander says, you act with integrity when it comes to the way that you accuse other people of crimes or the way that you uh, collect money from other people. Soldiers, they have the responsibility sometimes of collecting money from people and accusing people of crimes. And what he's saying is you do so with Jesus as your ultimate authority, uh, not yourself and not someone who's ahead of you. That, can, by, by the way, can create conflict in the life of a soldier if they're being pressured to do something contrary to the will of Jesus. But uh, right here you're seeing John is calling them not just to be baptized, but to repent also. And I think as we discuss baptism, this is planting the seeds of things that will pop up throughout the rest of Luke and the rest of Acts. But as you read through it, it becomes important to note that baptism is actually super easy. It's like there's nothing in the world easier than baptism. You don't even have to do it yourself anymore. You can just sit there. Someone else dips you under the water, pulls you back up. Like you're completely passive. You do nothing in baptism. But does that mean baptism is easy? <laughs> well, baptism's easy if you only go underwater and come back up. But if you actually reflect upon what baptism means for you, and that repentance and a change of life is a, is a call of baptism, then it becomes not quite so easy. Uh, I guess you could say baptism's the easy part, but when you connect it with the idea of repentance and a real new birth, a new person, a resurrection life, it becomes a life-changing battle that you will engage in for the rest of your life. 
And Luke, from the earliest discussion of baptism, is beginning to set that stage. And we'll see that play out throughout Luke and throughout Acts. Another next passage I wanted to look at is... Uh, we could look at the baptism of Jesus. It's just later on in the same chapter. And one of the things that you see uh, that happens when Jesus is baptized is you have this voice from heaven that calls him the beloved son. And then you have the Holy Spirit that falls upon him. Those are a couple of things that are different from when John baptized. So if you've, like, we've talked about a number of different baptisms. You have the ceremonial cleansings. You have the entrance into Judaism. You have entrance into the temple that the priests would, would do where they would put on the new clothing. You have the baptism of John, which is about forgiveness of sins and about repentance. And you have what Jesus experienced where he, the reception of the Holy Spirit and the pronouncement of being a son of God. One of the things that's interesting about baptism when it begins to be practiced in Acts is you can see like all of those things coming together in it. When baptism is practiced in, in the book of Acts, you do see the reception of the Holy Spirit. You see uh, the, the idea of repentance being connected and associated with it, like John's baptism. It is something done to you rather than something that you do for yourself. It is something for a, a cleansing. It is something to enter into a, a new community. It's, like, it has all of these things, but one uh, phrase that gets added to it over and over and over again that you don't see anywhere earlier is that it is done in the name of Jesus. Uh, if you listened to uh, the Sunday night lesson from two weeks ago, we went through Luke and Acts and we talked about the name of the Lord and the name of Jesus and, and how that plays out over and over and over again. And baptism is one of the critical elements that's associated with doing something in the name of Jesus. So I want to look at Acts chapter 2 right now. Acts chapter 2 for our next uh, example of baptism. And this is probably the one that uh, you hear about most often. Uh, we, will, we will try to point out some important things from it uh, before we move on. But in Acts chapter 2, you have uh, Jesus has been raised. He has ascended to the Father. The disciples have received the Holy Spirit. They've begun to teach. Peter uh, preaches the resurrection of Jesus and names that the crucified Jesus is actually the Lord in Christ. And in a shock to everyone, that's not what the plan was in anyone's mind, uh, that the Lord and the Christ they had long been expecting is actually the one who would be crucified. But that's what God has done. And when that message is heard, People are pricked to the heart, they believe it, and they respond, well, what shall we do? Kind of like that question that was asked to, uh, to, uh, to John the Baptist, what shall we do? Well, they asked Peter, what shall we do? And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he gives an answer. Peter said to them, repent. That kind of sounds like John, right? Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That, that phrase right there, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, sounds just like John. But Peter does add another little expression right there in the middle where he says, doing it in the name of Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ, and now when we are baptized, we are baptized for him, under his authority, in honor of him, we are baptized because of and for Jesus as our Lord. And so by adding that phrase, it gives a direction to which all of these aspects of baptism are pointing. And they're pointing to the lordship of Jesus. Baptism is a proclamation of the lordship of Jesus over our lives. And so as a part of that, yes, there is a change of life associated with it. There's also the forgiveness of sins. Remember, forgiveness of sins is in some ways a challenge to the temple authority. But forgiveness of sins is also, it's essential for fellowship with God. 
because God doesn't have fellowship with sin, and so he wants to have fellowship with you, and so how's that going to happen? How's God going to have fellowship with me if I'm a sinner? Well, he's going to forgive me of my sin. He's going to cleanse me of that sin, and that's a beautiful and wonderful idea. But I also think it's important to remember that forgiveness of sins is not the final goal of Christianity. Rather, the forgiveness of sins is the entry point into it. Forgiveness of sins is what is necessary for you to begin this fellowship with God and this walk with him. But you're called to something more than just crossing your fingers and sitting there and waiting and hoping you don't sin again. You're called to something more than just hoping the forgiveness of sin lasts. You're called to actually, now that you've had the chains of sin pulled off of you, it has freed you up to be who God has called you to be. Sin holds you back and drags you down. Sin keeps you from being the person that God has called you to be. Forgiveness of sins happens right at the beginning so that you are now freed to grow into the person that God wants you to be. Sin disguises that. Sin hides that from you. Sin keeps you from being the image of Christ that we're called to be. And so he forgives the sin, and then he says in verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit which will help you be transformed into who God calls you to be, who will produce and bear fruit that is producing in you what God wants you to be. And so you have help along the way. You are forgiven and you are filled with the Holy Spirit to now be the person that God is desiring you to be. And all of that is happening at baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when people hear that message, guess how they respond to it? If they want to say no, then they walk away. But verse 42, sorry, verse 41, and then those who received his word, they were baptized. That's how you say yes to this message. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. And guess what they did? Remember like John's teaching about repentance? You start seeing uh, verse 44, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and their possessions and sharing them among all as anyone might have need. That kind of sounds like if you have two cloaks, give to the person who does not. Be content with your wages. Like there's, even in Acts 2, there's a financial element to this about radical generosity because you are now part of a brand new, forgiven, spirit-filled community that we call the church. And God is transforming this community, one by one, individual by individual, into a collective group that will be his people, his special people, his people who are forgiven, filled with the Spirit, who have transformed their lives through repentance and are now living for him in a world that is in desperate need of it. So what you have happening right here is baptism is the initiate, your initiation into a new forgiven spirit-filled community of God. Um, one other passage I want to look at, it's in Acts chapter 8. Before you turn there, I'm just going to tell you something. It's about the Ethiopian eunuch. And before we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, I want to look at a passage from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23 This isn't a fun passage we're going to read, but it's, uh, it's in there. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1. <clears throat> no one who is emasculated 
or has his male organ cut off shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. Okay, that's what a eunuch is. Um, and what we're told right there is that there is a barrier because of that between you and the assembly of the Lord. Okay, now turn with me to uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. In Isaiah 56, we get this beautiful image of the inclusion that God uh, has in store for all people. That God doesn't want people to be cut off from the assembly of the Lord. God wants you, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you've experienced, he wants you to be welcomed. And so, in Isaiah 56 and verse 3, really important point. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigner, kind of like an Ethiopian, who has committed himself to the Lord, like that Ethiopian who worships in Jerusalem, right? He says, let not the foreigner say, the Lord has cut me off from his people. This is a vision of this glorious day that God has in store where all people are accepted. Notice the next phrase in verse 3. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep Sabbath and who choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a better name than that of sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. What he's saying is even eunuchs will be allowed into my house and I will, I will give them a name better even than sons and daughters. There will be no disconnect, no separation. They will be part of my people and even eunuchs and foreigners can have fellowship and relation with me. Look at verse 6. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Uh, he's talking about them and in verse 7 this is what he promises to them. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Notice, foreigners and eunuchs will be joyful as they are accepted by the Lord. The point I'm going to be making here in just a moment is that I think that it's not an accident that we have the conversion account of an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. I think that telling that story is going to remind the readers of this passage in Isaiah 56. By the way, he was just reading Isaiah 53 while he's in the chariot. If they continue that study a little bit further, there's a really, really wonderful message for that Ethiopian eunuch who just went to Jerusalem to worship and no doubt experienced some of that separation, who no doubt experienced some of that uh, distance. And as he hears the message, he reads Isaiah 53, he doesn't understand it, he asks for help. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, begins to describe it to him. And then I want to read the next couple of verses. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. It says, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture from, from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. I wonder if they went three chapters over. I bet they did, which is what I'm going to say. Uh, but he preached Jesus to him. And then verse 36, and as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? He is used to a life of being prevented from growing closer to God, or a life of exclusion, or a life of, of, of separate, or at least being second class. And here he sees water, and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? A couple of things are interesting about this. One is that by preaching Jesus to him, I think he's starting to realize that he can be accepted, even though he's an Ethiopian eunuch. Another thing is by preaching Jesus to him, 
he seems to know about baptism. And he seems to know that obedience to Jesus or saying yes to Jesus includes baptism. And so he asks the question, and, and some of your Bibles will do different things with verse 37. Um, I'll, I'll read it now. It says, and Philip said, you may believe with, uh, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And then verse 38 says, and he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And guess what the eunuch does? And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. You have a foreigner in service to a pagan king who is also a eunuch, who has gone to Jerusalem to worship, but would have been experiencing the separation from there and the distance there from the assembly of the Lord and from the people of God that he must have longed for, having traveled all the way there. But it's on his way back that he's able to hear the message of salvation, the message of inclusivity of Jesus, and to realize that baptism and salvation and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and joy are for him. What I think that teaches us, and you can go through Acts and you can see this, you can see the Jews in Jerusalem, large group of them baptized, 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. But then you keep reading and you see that the Jews in Judea are baptized. The Samaritans are baptized. Even an Ethiopian eunuch is baptized before a Gentile is baptized, before a jailer Gentile is baptized. And you can go through and what you'll see is that baptism is not limited because Jesus is not limited. Jesus is not limited to one small group or, or one small, but Jesus is for you. If you're in here right now, Jesus is for you. And baptism is for you. And if there is anybody here, as we draw our lesson to a close, who wants to take that step, you can receive the tremendous blessings that have been described as being associated with Jesus and with saying yes to him through baptism. You can be baptized right here this morning. You can have your sins forgiven. You can receive the Holy Spirit. You can go on your way rejoicing, knowing that you are part of the community of God. If we can help you do that, please let that be known. Please, you can, you can come up forward while we sing. You can go talk to one of our elders in the back. You can go find me. You can send me a text message later today. Uh, but if you have the need, we pray that you let that be known. And come while we stand and as we sing.